Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abu Rima, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign around well-being, which is critically important for healthcare professionals during this COVID-19 pandemic. And today we'll be thinking about the potential long-term implications for clinician mental health post-COVID. We are delighted to have on the podcast a special guest who knows all about that. Neil, please could you introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is Neil Greenberg. I am a consultant psychiatrist. I'm a professor of defence mental health uh, at King's College London, and and I chair the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists Special Interest Group in Occupational Psychiatry. Uh, And my background is having spent 23 years in the military as a doctor and a psychiatrist, is that I became very interested in the mental health of uh, people working in highly challenging circumstances. Uh, so of course that includes the armed forces but obviously emergency services and most definitely healthcare workers especially at the moment. And Neil you wrote um, an analysis article for the BMJ I think in March last year and in that you talked a bit about what needed to be done to protect healthcare workers and also the impact of moral injury and I wanted to start by just asking you what moral injury is because I think it's a relatively new term and how that relates to what we might be more used to which is um, post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD. Yes yeah, so moral injury actually has been around certainly since uh, the time of sort of the Vietnam War and it started in in relation to difficulties that were seen in soldiers who were coming back from war zones um, where they had seen or done or, or or been involved in incidents which strongly clashed with their moral code and actually the history of moral injury look at it goes back far 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 further than than the vietnam war but that was when it kind of really came to light and what moral injury describes is a situation in which uh, you find yourself uh, being asked to participate or witness events that, that strongly clash with what you believe is morally and ethically right and what that can do is to uh, induce in you very strong feelings of anger or shame or guilt. And they themselves are not an illness. So moral injury is, is not, you won't find that in the diagnostic textbooks as, as, a, as a mental health disorder. But all the work we've done on it, uh, and other people too, show that it can very strongly be correlated with post-traumatic stress disorder, with depression. And also there's a weak but positive correlation uh, with suicidality as well. So if one were to think of a spectrum of reactions to morally challenging events, you know, you go from not having a reaction to having what you might call moral distress through moral injury, where actually something's beginning to kind of bed in. And that makes you vulnerable to go on and develop frank mental health problems such as PTSD, depression and the like. And Neil, what do you think are the moral challenges that healthcare staff are facing at the moment? Well, I think um, healthcare and indeed many other professions, including social care, military, emergency services, you know, have faced moral challenges, you know, for a long, long time. Um, but I think what's happened over the past year or so is that um, the situations in which healthcare workers have found themselves have have not necessarily been hugely different in terms of what they are, but in the scale and persistence of them, and in the particular um, sort of difficulties that that covid has brought um for the way that you can deliver healthcare. 
And so if you take a kind of very frontline role where you might look at um, staff in intensive care, rather than having sort of one clinician per bay dedicated to a particular patient, you've often got the expert clinicians spread around a number of bays with less expert uh, people who have kindly volunteered to come and work there, trying to do their best at the bedside. And if you look at primary care, you'll find there clinicians who actually are used to sitting with and empathising and understanding their patients, but not being able to do that properly and, and people not coming forward and asking for care until things are too late. And, and even then finding the difficulties of remote consultations, you know, impair their ability to, to properly deliver the quality of care that they want. And, and what this leads to across the board in healthcare is this kind of notion that I did my best, but, but it wasn't good enough. Uh, and that bad things have happened, uh, and that's not right. That's not why I became a healthcare professional. And that is the seed of a moral injury. Uh, and and the question really is, is what happens to that? You know, do you manage to make sense of it and, and resolve it over time by yourself with others um, through reflection? Or actually, does it sit there and fester and over time it makes you more vulnerable and other stresses therefore unfortunately lead you to, to become formally unwell? And Neil, you talked in your analysis in, in March about potentially ways that we could avoid healthcare workers suffering from oral injury. And I'm just conscious that as this kind of, I think we're in the second wave now of the pandemic has occurred, we've heard more discussions about staff struggling with a lack of resources. And I just wonder whether you think enough has actually been done to protect healthcare workers from this or whether we now have a group of people who are genuinely affected. So I, th I think keeping in our minds that moral injury by itself is not a mental illness, although it makes you more vulnerable to it. I think what has happened over time is that the challenges, the moral challenges have changed somewhat. You know, so early on in the pandemic, there was this difficulty with PPE. You know, did I have the right equipment? You know, could I could I deliver the care I want safely for me and my family? And then there has been uh, the challenges of, of people from particular groups, you know, such as black, Asian, minority and ethnic groups who seem to be more at risk. And actually, you know, non-clinicians, you know, hospital porters and, and cleaners and other, you know, vital staff who actually seem to be catching the illness and becoming unwell at, at a rate which is higher than the rate that you might find in frontline clinicians. And then now, more more recently, we've had this kind of, this has been going on for such a long time, and here are all these people who are, we're back in it again, that's not right, we, sh we shouldn't be here again, you know, we should have learned our lessons. So I think for, for individuals, the, the, the challenges they face will, will have definitely changed over time. But I think, actually, in my experience of having you know, linked with frontline workers and, and the research that we've done, I think what it what it showed is actually that there are a number of people and I think a number of teams, to be fair, who actually having gone through this in March, April, May, June last year, actually redesigned themselves, you know, reconfigured themselves and actually started talking and putting in support and actually making sure that teams were mutually supportive. And I would hope, although I'm sure they're struggling now because because many people are actually they are in a much better place than they probably they were back in March. But then there's other teams who kind of somehow got through the first wave and sort of struggled on. And then the second wave hit. And it's those teams who I, who I really fear for, because um, that the question is, how, how are they going to ensure that their staff not only don't become really unwell, but also how do they ensure the staff deliver the quality of care that that, that that's definitely needed at the moment? Um, so I think what's happened over time is is that the, the, the concept of moral injury has remained uh, really prevalent. Uh, and and the the challenge 
for us now is how do we try and reduce it? But the, the challenge going forward in the future is how do we find people who have been affected by it and who develop mental health problems and make sure they get to the right level of care? Because the real challenge here at the heart of this is because of the shame and guilt and anger people feel, they might not volunteer this very easily. You know, am I right to be angry at my boss because I want to tell my boss just what I think of them? You know, that's not probably good for my career. And, and you know, isn't the, but I'm desperately angry. Or actually, am I so shameful or guilty that actually I can't speak about it? Because if people knew what I'd done and what I hadn't done, actually, they'd think I'm a monster. You know, I'd lose my registration. I, I can't speak about it. And so the, what moral injury does is to provide a barrier to seeking appropriate care, um, which already exists on top of all the other barriers that we know exist to seeking mental health care in the first place. Thanks, Neil. Uh, and I'd love to pick up further on, on what you were saying about, you know, that identification and those barriers to seeking help. But I just would like to go back. You talked about teams who, um, in the first wave of the pandemic, developed these um, coping mechanisms collectively um, for dealing with this moral distress, which which may be inevitable, but in order to sort of prevent that from becoming moral injury and then becoming, you know, a, a a mental health problem in the future and um, can you tell us about what some of those behaviors were that those teams developed that other teams might want to learn from and emulate yeah so i think there's three key elements to the sustaining of staff who are who are doing highly highly challenging work uh, and i i've definitely seen that all these three elements sometimes in in one particular department but certainly spread around departments people are doing some of this so the first key element is about making sure that supervisors, so the the uh, the ward manager, the um, the team leader, whatever the right term might be in each department, that that shop floor supervisor has some ability and most importantly confidence to have well-being conversations with their staff. We've often termed them psychologically savvy chats, and that's and that that relies on them knowing enough starter questions to kind of open people up. So when you say to someone, how are you doing? And they go, I'm fine. You don't go, oh, that's great and move on. You know, you, you question that, like, really? Or, or you might say, well, I'm glad you're doing okay. I have to say, I've been finding it pretty tough. Because once you can start having these meaningful well-being conversations, so much good can flow of it, flow from it. And that's not just because people do well when they've been heard, but it's also because if, if my concern is actually I'm not delivering the right care or I'm not doing the right thing, then actually a supervisor might be able to help you with that. They might be able to mentor you. They might be able to buddy you up with someone who 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 knows how to do it better. And the best cure for anxiety about work performance isn't 12 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy. It, it's knowing how to do your job better. And, and that's something a supervisor can help with. So I think the first element is that what they've done is invested in supervisors upskilling them to feel confident about having these conversations. And actually, there's been some training available you know, through NHS England, but also I'm sure more locally as well to help with that. The second thing is about peer support. And we know there is excellent evidence that social support is really protective of mental health, or, or probably we should say more carefully, can be really protective of mental health. And so actually, what rather than saying, oh, we're all a good team, you know, do speak to each other if you've got a problem, you need to be a bit more formal and a bit more proactive in that. And that might mean that that teams, and I know it's been happening, you know, have been buddying people up. You know, so Sandra, Peter, actually on this shift, as well as you handling those bays, I want you to be checking in with each other proactively every hour and having those conversations. So, so that is your job today. Um, I also think there's there are formal peer support uh, structures out there, things like you might well have heard of trauma risk management or mental health first aid or psychological first aid, or th there's other sort of programs. And actually a lot of uh, the uh, 
um, certainly the, the the secondary care trust have actually in particularly in the lull between the first and second way they put a lot of those things in place so they've trained up peers to have these conversations to be available they're in the workplace they're there for you um, and alongside that when the breaks happen and the sort of well-being spaces that thankfully have been there you know the peer supporters will be there and actually they're there to kind of mop up and be and help their colleagues rather than say oh if you want them you know do go and get them because people don't do that actively and then the last thing is that many uh, places have made use of or introduced reflective practice you know and this is the ability to to have um, conversations ideally led led by supervisors or leaders in which actually people can talk not just about what happened but about the impact of what's happened so actually rather than me sitting here worrying that actually i'm a monster and everyone thinks i'm rubbish or that you know i'm angry at my boss actually by hearing everyone else talk about it i realize we actually are in the same storm together you know hopefully in the same boat and actually what you aim for through that reflective practice is to develop what we call a meaningful narrative so a story that doesn't end up with you being the victim or the perpetrator but ends up with you all saying you know what this was incredibly tough and yes people did die yes care wasn't ideal but on the other hand, we also did a lot of good, you know, and let's and, and let's blame this on the virus, blame this on the situation and not blame it on each other because that's not helpful. And whilst that might seem a slightly depressive position, that's a psychologically much easier position to deal with rather than it's all my fault or someone else's fault and not to talk about that. So I think that supervisor um, support, peer support and reflective practice have been three really useful practical initiatives that can go on and have gone on and I, I hope are will become more common across the NHS you know in all settings not just in secondary care because primary care just as much you know ha has been feeling the brunt of, of this storm as well. I just want to pick up on that that primary care issue Neil because you know with my GP hat on as, as I was listening to you um, describe those behaviours that are so protective for teams around supervisors and peer support and reflective practice and um, it's quite relatively straightforward to see how that supervisor um, upskilling and, and peer support might happen in secondary care, but it, it's much more a challenge to see how that might happen in primary care, given how fragmented it, it is generally and how much more fragmented it's become during COVID with a lot of remote consulting. Do you have any kind of thoughts or sort of experiences that you can share around that? Yeah, so actually from a primary care point of view, because you know, to some degree primary care is a business, isn't it? It's, it's, it's delivering you know, a, a useful clinical output and, and the partners and the GPs you know, are trying to pull this together to, to achieve the, 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 um, the whole practice's aims, not just the, the clinical delivery. There's actually rather similar to, to many other industries and occupations out there. And one of the things I've, I've been doing quite a lot over the last year is to work with the Society of Occupational Medicine that I'm a trustee with and also you know, business in the community and um, the British Psychological Association have a division of occupational psychology. And actually industries across the board have found it very difficult to support each other during this. And I hear time and time again when I speak to leaders and managers say it's really difficult to support staff remotely. And you know what? They're absolutely right. It is really difficult, but it's not impossible. And so actually, I think that the lessons here is, yes, in primary care, because there isn't this kind of team where you all come in and have to do things together and you're working remotely. What it means is, is there needs to be more active efforts for for colleagues to to spend some of their day in sustaining each other and not to spend all of their day in delivering the important clinical output. Um, and, you know, it's not my phrase, but it's often been said this is a marathon and not a sprint. But part of that marathon is about keeping yourself and your colleagues in a state where you can keep going and not just gritting your teeth and sort of 
bearing the the brunt of the storm because because eventually that's likely to catch up with many of us so i completely get that that in primary care it it's less easy because the the, the structural hierarchy isn't there and the and the, the sort of the scale of, of support isn't there but actually, but actually it, you know i i think amongst practices there often are some levels of supervision you know the senior people there are junior members of staff there's importantly the administrative staff who obviously do their critically important jobs too so yeah more difficult i agree but i certainly don't think impossible uh, and i just think it, it does take more active efforts you know but that that's part of the job at the moment unfortunately neil i've got a question for you but first let's hear from our sponsor at medical protection we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners and as they work tirelessly to look after others we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. Neil, you talked about kind of ways that teams have been successful and those are some really nice examples of things that people have been doing. But you also mentioned that there might be a group of people who haven't managed quite so well and I wonder what's next with them what will happen to them yes that's 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 a really good point so um, at this moment now the NHS has um, said they've been investing 15 million pounds in these sort of wellness or recovery hubs or resilience hubs they may change a little bit and that's the idea to provide some sort of level of psychological input you know across the NHS and again that's although it might be based in secondary care, it's absolutely for primary care and pharmacies and also for social care staff. So that we're actually asking quite a lot of, of, of what these, these hubs might do. Um, now, the potential for the hubs to do good, I think, is definitely there. The, the problem with all these things is how it translates into reality. And I think what we have to hope and try and also uh, encourage is that actually what the hubs don't turn into is some more screening and a bit of assessment and then referring people on to you know a very long waiting list to get non-specialist therapy in a sort of group or or with some educational activities which we know doesn't work so if we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder in particular you know i was lucky enough to be part of the nice panel which reviewed that guidance and was issued at the end of 2018 and what we're very clear is there are some really good treatments out there that could take someone who might have post-traumatic stress disorder you know caused by a moral injury or not and actually through 8 10 12 sessions can help return them to good occupational function and there's really good evidence that if you make your therapeutic input occupationally focused so you don't just look about how do we improve your symptoms but at the heart of it we look we want you to reclaim your life which means going back to work for most of us that actually that sort of um, therapy has a much better um, success rate not just for helping people improve but also for getting people back to work so i i think what this says is is there's an opportunity out there for ensuring that um healthcare staff who have been unfortunately damaged by this pandemic um should be getting towards you know professional nice approved evidence-based therapies 
And this is a bit of me standing on my soapbox, so I apologise about this. But um, I spent a lot of my life in the military and also I still do a lot of military veterans research work and, and support. And there is something called the Military Covenant. And what the Military Covenant says is that because military veterans put their life and well-being on the line, the country will make sure that they are no disadvantage because of what's happened to them. So that has led to the establishment of an NHS veterans mental health service. And so that means that veterans can get specific services, you know, which are focused on their particular needs. And actually they can get to see someone within two weeks rather than six weeks. And and that's because, you know, it's accepted that being in the armed forces exposes you to particular risks and therefore we don't we want to be fair to them. Well, actually, you know, apply that to the NHS, particularly over the last year where they have put their life and their well-being and their family's well-being on the line. Uh, and my view is that actually if they have been damaged as a result of their work in the NHS, it makes complete sense and is morally understandable that, that the country should should repay them in the similar way to that it's accepted that we repay veterans. And so whether there should be an NHS covenant or whether there should be a, a at least a formal declaration that actually if you have been damaged by your work, then we will do something special for you because it's only fair. I think that that should happen. And you know what? It's not just right because um, it obeys the principle of reciprocity, you know, which says the more you give, the more you deserve. It's also right because we're going to need these staff to be fit and well to come back and do their job to recover our services as well. So I think there is a I think the nation would accept that the nation would accept that, you know, what used to be called our NHS heroes. And I know there's lots of difficulty with that hero label, which we don't need to go into. But but the right thing is to is to repay that dedication to duty with saying, if you've been damaged by it, then we will do our best to get you back on track as soon as we can. That's good for you. And also it's good for the NHS. Thank you, Neil. And I think that's a really important commitment for us to make. Um, the cynical part of me says that you know, part of the challenge for the NHS in responding to COVID was that um, the NHS has been damaging its staff for years um, in terms of, you know, before all of this, we saw increasing rates of burnout, um, increasing rates of staff sickness and absence across all clinical professions, you know, not just doctors, but but nurses and, and other allied health professionals. Um, and yet, although we've seen the expansion of the NHS practitioner health programme over the past few years, you know, we haven't seen this kind of specific um, occupational focused um, support. Um, do, do, we, do you think that the 15 million is going to go near touching the sides of, of the demand that we're going to see? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, it, you know, I think the, the, the truthful answer to that is it remains to be seen. But what I would say, and, and I'm not trying to be too positive here, is that's 15 million more than there was before. So that provides an opportunity to do something different and hopefully positive. Um, I think what um, the NHS, and I, I'm part of what's called the NHS um, Recovery Commission, which is the sort of NHS people team, I guess, of experts who advise NHS people about what to do. And I definitely think there is an understanding that that they want to do more and they want to make the NHS you know, a place that people are proud to, to work in and that they feel well supported and all those things that you quite rightly said, you know, were not necessarily ideal before the pandemic started. Um, I, I, I think it's for all of us to do our best, not just to, well, let's wait and see, but to carry on, you know, nudging and pushing and looking for uh, not just principles based 
uh, solutions because I think there's lots of agreement on the principles. You know, we should look after our staff. That as a principle, everyone agrees that. The question is, what does that look like on the ground? What does it actually deliver? If I'm unwell, how do I get to get treatment quickly? Um, and, and I have to hope and I will do my best uh, as part of the, the various people that will do the nudging to try and make that happen. I think what's important is um, that there is a responsibility of the NHS to, um, to, to to look out for their people for sure. But there's also some responsibility for staff who are unwell and who kind of know they're unwell but don't want to admit it to actually put their hand up. And, and one of the things that the um, the pandemic, I think, has done is to highlight that that mental health uh, problems amongst NHS staff, you know, are pretty common. So whereas before you might have felt alone, actually the call to arms here is actually you are definitely not alone. <laughs> you know, there are many people just like you. And actually, you know, if you put your hand up and you go and get help, actually, and that works for you, that will also encourage your colleagues to come and get help too, because you will be seen as a story of success. And again, without, so, so I, I think there definitely is an opportunity here and, and we need to to grab it by the horns. And this is this is being, I know, perhaps even more overly positive, but we absolutely know there's a concept which is called post-traumatic growth. And what that basically says is that, you know, things that don't kill you can make you stronger. And I am confident. And in fact, the research work we're doing through King's College London, we've got a big study going on with over 25,000 staff in it called NHS Check. Is, you know, we're looking for evidence of post-traumatic growth and we are absolutely confident it's out there. And so the challenge here isn't just how do we stop people becoming unwell, it's how do we use this really horrible experience to actually grow a more resilient workforce. And, um, you know, I, I think we should keep that at our, the, the forefront of our minds and do everything we can to, to, to encourage that. The Royal College of Psychiatrists has a, a recovery plan, uh, which is called Going for Growth. Because that's what we want to do. We, you know, we want to try and get the most out of this. And certainly my military experience says that when you ask troops who have come back from the most terrible of deployments, where unfortunately lots of people have died and been injured, actually, you don't find huge, huge waves of people who say, this is terrible, I'm leaving. What you find is people saying, do you know what, actually, if I can cope with that, actually, I think the fact that the two for one deal has gone at Tesco is, you know, I can cope with that this week. It's, it's, it's not so bad. So. Yeah, I completely agree. It's easy to be sceptical and, and I'm not saying I'm I'm overly optimistic, but I think we have to see this as an opportunity and to do everything we can to make it better. That's great. That's really positive. I like this idea that people can can grow out of these experiences. Um, just something you said there, um, basically, Neil, what I want to ask you, and it's going to sound really silly, is I've seen lots of people discussing on social media how we're going to have a cohort of staff who are at least going to need a break or maybe leave the NHS. And I wonder if there's any military parallels, whether um, troops get time off after traumatic experiences, but should we be giving staff, you know, I don't know, a month or two months off? And is that the answer? So um, troops who go away on an operational deployment get around one extra day's leave for every nine days that they spent on deployment. And that kind of usually comes out a sort of a month or so when you've been away for, for, um, for six months because you've got your own leave as, as well in it to take. So I, 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 whenever things begin to calm and when, when there is um, time uh, available, um, there, there is a huge amount of supportive evidence saying that giving people a, a, a short break for sure, which allows, labels them to sort of reconnect with loved ones and get their mind around the, uh, what's happened to them and try and make sense of their experience. But then a substantial break, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, when that's available, that that is likely to be a good thing. We've done studies looking at what we call uh, decompression in the military and also normalization to so that period when you come back trying to get back to normal. And actually, you know, 
this is not penicillin for trauma, but the, the evidence is really supportive that for most people it makes a big difference. But here's the caution. The caution is, is that actually the people who are the most uh, affected by the trauma, actually they don't engage with that. So actually, instead of actually reconnecting with their family and going on that walk, if you're allowed out, you know, that you haven't you wanted to do and, and actually, you know, finding some meaning and, and reconnecting and being refreshed. Actually, the people who are the most traumatized are avoidant in the military. They often uh, turn to Johnny Walker, you know, or, or, or Jim Bean as, 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 as their as their way of, of getting help. And actually, so that that time off doesn't help them. Um, so I think as well as making sure we absolutely do give people a, a bit of breathing space, we also need to keep in our minds that actually some of these people aren't going to benefit from it. And what that means is that supervisors, and again, I do think this falls down to supervisors, whenever this begins to end, need to be having an individual chat with all their members of staff to find out what someone's experience was. Um, not just at work, but also at home, because, of course, there's plenty of traumas with bereavement and job losses and homeschooling and all those other things that might have been going on to find out what someone's experience was. And then at that point to try and help work with the individual to say, what can we do to make your situation better? And if that supervisor were to think that the individual actually might have a mental health problem, then their job is to be nudging them towards whatever the available support is to make sure they don't just sit there and, and drink a lot and, and go downhill and feel guilty and not come back and go sick because no no one benefits from that. Um, but I don't think we can just say, uh, here's a leaflet about it. Do come in if you want to, because that's not good enough. Thanks, Neil. And I think it sounds, it sounds like the role of the supervisor is, is critically important, particularly when one does have a mental health problem and you lose, you lose perspective on, you know, wh whether this is normal and, and what help you might need. Um, but I think in terms of that, how might our listeners who've been through this sort of this intensely distressing time, how might they start to recognise in, in themselves when this sense of anger or loss or exhaustion might be turning into something that may be a more of a persistent mental health problem that, that they might need to seek help for? Are there any kind of red flags people should be watching out for? I mean, there, there, there are plenty. And you know, if you were to look on the Royal College of Psychiatrists, you know, information sheet on PTSD, there'll be a whole list of symptoms there which will indicate that you might have problems. You know, many of them, I guess, won't be surprising in terms of poor sleep. Particularly, that's a good one because that, that often happens first. Um, you know, you might your behaviour with your drinking, stopping your exercise, uh, not communicating well with people, you know, symptoms, can't stop thinking about it. But at the heart of all of this is actually having some symptoms particularly at the moment is, is probably pretty normal I, I i i expect there aren't a lot of people out there who are who are completely in zen mode many of us are finding that this is difficult because it is difficult the key point here is about what i would say is functional impairment is about how has this impacted upon your ability to go about your day-to-day -day activities are you shouting at your kids when that's not who you normally are you know are you not really caring too much about your patients when actually that's that's not how you've been um, and and the way to do that is to a reflect on that yourself, but b also to try and speak to people that you trust, uh, and that might be work colleagues, it might be your family, it might be friends. And although it's hard to start those conversations, but by saying it's been really tough, actually a lot of good can flow out of that because often people will 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 talk about that relatively easily. And I I suspect I hope at the moment you won't find someone saying, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, why are you saying that? I think everyone will accept this this this, this, this is difficult. So. I would look at yourself, you know, by all means, read information sheets, particularly judge how am I functioning and then speak to people that you trust uh, and to ask them, you know, at, as part of that conversation, I wonder how you think that I'm doing, um, uh, which might seem a brave and sort of strange thing to do. But often those objective um, 
um, sort of viewpoints are really useful in helping you decide how you're doing. And one of the things I learned early in my psychiatry is if everyone's telling you that something is wrong with an individual, you have to ask yourself the question why everybody is telling you. You know, so for you yourself, if your spouse is saying, your colleagues are saying, your children are saying, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> uh, and you should ask yourself the question whether that reason is actually you, you do have a difficulty. And then, and then, of course, it's then your decision about where you reach out for help. And just worth saying, although although it's not formal therapy and treatment on the NHS people website, there are free resources for all NHS professionals um, and you can use them. They don't know who you are. You know, it's anonymous and confidential. So why not give that a go? Because you never know it might help. Um, and then there's a whole range of other services, you know, including importantly, you know, practitioner health program and, and other things for, 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 for medics and dentists. And just turning that on its Head, Neil, I wonder if you're the colleague or, or loved one of someone who has come to you because they're suffering, what's the best way that you could support them? So I, I'd say I think the most important thing you can do is to give people a, a damn good listening to um, and not to jump to solutions too quickly. Um, so often if people can feel that you can listen to them and hopefully not be too affected by it yourself, because sometimes you might hear some stories that, you know, that are are hard to hear and you might need to go and speak to others about them too confidentially but to give people a good listening to um once people have had a good listening to i, I would say you should check for risk so you know thankfully you know risky behavior is uncommon but but a question such as gosh all, all that sounds really tough how's tomorrow looking you know and someone who goes I just don't know. You know. I just can't see. That's far more worrying than, well, uh, tomorrow's a different day. You know, I'll go in and put my brave face on. So do check for the potential for risk. And the best way is to have a forward future facing question. You know, how's tomorrow looking? What are you doing next? And then to try and come up with a specific plan with them. You know, what do they want from you? How, how can you help them? I'll ask them for their ideas about how you can help rather than jumping into, right, here's three things you can do to make it better. So Developing a collaborative plan based upon what they want is probably the best way. And then from your point of view is, is to understand that sometimes you can't solve these things in, in one session and that if you can keep the drawbridge down, so keep a conversation going, actually you may end up getting to the right point, even though you may become slightly frustrated that you couldn't get there as fast as you want. But don't be doing the, well, if you don't, if you don't do that, you're stupid. And, you know, with no point, you know, those sorts of ultimatums, uh, you can try and stay away from them if, if at all possible, I would say. That's great. Thank you. I love the idea of giving someone a damn good listening to. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Neil, was there anything else that you, I mean, wanted to, to sort of cover or, you know, anything from your soapbox that you wanted to say? I was very happy to, to hear it and provide a space for that. No, I guess I guess the only, only thing I would say that from a, I mean, my academic soapbox this time is is that there are lots of things that we've talked about and lots of suggestions about ways that staff well-being can be improved. And I think many of them have a good theoretical basis, but we always have to keep the back of our mind that actually every time you try and do good, you also have the potential to do harm. Uh, and what we absolutely wouldn't want to do is to say, right, reflective practice groups are definitely the thing to treat moral injury. We must roll them out to everyone tomorrow and that's it. I would much rather say, when we're not sure, we think this is a good idea, let's do this, but let's try and get a proper trial look in place to actually see whether this does make a difference. I mean, one of the interesting uh, points that we're looking at with uh, emergency service workers, and we were looking at this pre-COVID, is, is the idea of briefing emergency service workers about the potential for suffering with traumatic stress symptoms before they go into trauma. Is that a good idea? Does it help? 
So in the past, we've always thought that actually telling people about, you know, you may suffer sleeplessness, you might suffer this, you might suffer that. If you do get some help, we think that's useful. But actually, there is some emerging evidence and it's only emerging that actually what you might be doing is sensitizing people. They think, oh, I'm definitely going to that's going to happen. And if I get if I get poor sleep, you know, that that clever ologist person you know, says that that was a sign of illness. When actually we all have poor sleep at times. And, and so I think we just have to be cautious that not not to jump too fast. Uh, and to take a, a pragmatic approach, but also a scientific one and gather the evidence to, to make sure that we do develop things that actually make a positive difference. Well, I thought that was really interesting, Kat. So much to take away from it. I thought Neil's point about there being a specific mental health service for veterans, really interesting and reflecting on how we could do the same for NHS staff. I know that... Um, and I would completely agree with some of your cynicism around how this would work, but it sounds like that could could be potentially a good idea. Absolutely. Um, and as Neil said, I think we have to be forward facing, don't we? And I think, you know, we can regret, you know, the previous conditions for staff in the NHS. And, you know, we can regret this sort of epidemic of burnout, but it doesn't help us work out how to solve it. And I think, you know, I really welcome that optimism around, you know, this has really changed the conversations that we're able to have around mental health and vulnerabilities and um, stress at work, um, and that it's a fantastic opportunity to uh, create something that will help staff get very targeted, very specific evidence-based help that they need, which will help them get back to work, which we know... um, is a healthy place to be we know that for most people being in work is is very healthy for them and I think you know many many of our NHS staff most if not all went into the NHS because they wanted to do a good job and they wanted to care for others um, and we need to help them be able to do that. I like your mention of the word optimism there as well because I I found Neil's comments about post-traumatic growth really heartening because I have been very worried about my sister and friends who've been working on the front line and actually it's quite nice to hear someone say well you know obviously it's not all rosy in the garden but there, there's an opportunity as well for people to grow from these experiences so that's something positive. Absolutely and I remember talking to a friend of mine some years ago who was in the US military um, and talking about his deployment to to Iraq and Afghanistan um, and him saying, you know, it was a fantastic experience because although it was very difficult, he got to do what he had been trained to do and he got to do it to the best visibility in very challenging circumstances. Um, but it was at the same time extremely fulfilling and it was a perspective which I just hadn't ever occurred to me before. Um, but I have heard that that sort of echoes through some of my colleagues um, who, who've gone through this um, in the front lines of the NHS. So, um I think it's, as Neil was saying, everybody's experience is different. Everybody's reaction to those experiences are different. And if we can try and uh, encourage teams and individuals to create these meaningful narratives that um, lay the blame in the right place, you know, lay it towards um, the the virus itself, um, the system, uh, and not on their own shoulders, um, then I think we'll be able to move forward in a, a much more mentally healthy way. Absolutely. Well, on that positive note, that's all we have time for. A huge thanks to Professor Neil Greenberg for joining us on the podcast today. And you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. We'd really like to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. And until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.